1: It is time, ladies and gentlemen, as he waits patiently standing out in the foyer, leaning on his cane, because he's old, you know, and he's got a long white beard, and he's kind of hunched over in the shoulders, and he's, he's got his glasses on the tip of his nose. Come stagger up to the microphone, if you would, and say welcome to Dr. History. Good morning,
2: sir. How are you doing this
1: morning? I'm good, my buddy. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. Doing good. Doing good. What have you got to My tell us DNA, today? But no, it's cooled things off a little.
1: Oh, it has. Well, now, as you're sitting on your stool and kind of easing that big book from under your arm, what are we going to talk about today?
2: Well, we're going to go back to some of the uh, medical practices that took place in the Old West, particularly the doctors that treated the uh, cavalry guys that got shot by arrows.
1: Uh-oh, look out.
2: So, this is uh, kind of an interesting uh, uh, part of the medical history of the Old West, I guess we could say. Okay. So, you know, the Indians, uh, they were expert, obviously, in the use of the bow and arrow in battle, and this actually presented a new challenge to the frontier military doctors, because few doctors had previous experience treating arrow wounds, so they were forced to learn about this through trial and error, and combined with some common sense there was a guy by the name of Dr. Joseph Bill, who was assistant surgeon at Fort Craig, New Mexico Territory, and he actually developed the first instruments for treating arrow wounds. And the technique uh, uh, that guided other military doctors uh, faced with the same kind of uh, injury. Um, Now, you know, an Indian, a skilled Indian, could actually shoot about six arrows per minute. So, about every ten seconds, uh, you've got an arrow coming at you.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So if a soldier was struck with one arrow, he was likely to soon be hit by another. So purposely, though, the Indian War arrowheads were loosely attached to the shaft. They used animal material like tendon or ligament tissue or some type of organic glue. But you anyway, know when this material became wet from the victim's blood, the connection was weakened. Ugh. So the arrowhead usually stayed in when the shaft was pulled out which obviously became a source of potential infection. Now, furthermore, any attempt to remove an arrow by the injured soldier or helpful buddies could not only produce additional tissue damage, it also made the doctor's job more difficult. And without the shaft as a guide, it was often hard for a surgeon to find and remove the arrowhead. So soldiers were warned not to pull out arrows, but most of them did anyway. You know, I thought about that, and I thought, you know, if you if you got an arrow in you, and you're running from the Indians, either on a horse or on foot, and you got an arrow sticking out of you, I'm just thinking, I'm going to pull this thing out, uh-huh. um, whether they were successful or not, but, you know, you don't want a bunch of arrows sticking out as you're running through the brush. Well, you know, this is paper. all, this is all... I actually had an arrowhead in his back for, I think, three or four years before he finally got to... Uh, search and then actually was able to operate and pull out
1: that arrowhead. Yeah, but wait a minute, uh, Dr. History, wait a minute, wait a minute, if you can hear me. Uh, okay. The way you said that a minute ago is all speculation. If you have, like you said, a bunch of arrows sticking in you and you try to run away, uh, Dr. History, let me reiterate the obvious. If you have a bunch of arrows sticking in you, I don't think you're
2: running anywhere. Well... Let's just say they're uh, uh, flesh wound type arrows.
0: Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> you know, not hitting anything critical. Okay. So, uh, you know, not through the heart. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a picture of uh, this Dr. Bill. He invented this little, uh, they called it bill snare. And as I'm looking at a picture of this, what it is, it looks like a round or very thin rod that goes straight, and then at the very end, it's bent at 90 degrees, and then it's uh, uh, formed into a hoop or a loop or a, a circle. And so what he would do is he would, uh, again, as long as the arrow, head w- or the arrow uh, shaft was still there, he would move that right down the, the shaft of the arrow and hook it over the tip of the arrow head, Woof. and then pull it out.
0: Oh, man!
2: Which, again, uh, you know, wasn't real comfortable for the uh, for the uh, uh, soldier, uh, because typically there was no anesthesia.
0: Uh-huh.
2: So, but, you know, in spite of the difficulties, these Army doctors had a good record in treating what we would call superficial arrow wounds. Yeah. Uh, most of the fatalities uh, were from really head injuries, abdominal and chest-type injuries, you know, those... You were pretty much gone. Well, yeah, if you got an arrow stuck in
1: your head from ear to ear, I can imagine.
2: By a reflex, you know, most of us, if an arrow's coming towards us, we're going to try to put our hand up in front of us or our arm. So so a lot of them were, like, say, uh, in the arms but uh, and, and some in the legs, obviously. But, okay. But with experience, you know, the military doctor developed special methods in the treatment of arrow wounds. Uh, I say, first he would explore the wound with his finger to determine the location and the attitude of the arrow, and what structures were nearby, like if it's the kidneys, the liver, whatever, and sometimes he used uh, uh, this long, thin uh, probe tip knife type thing uh, that was fashioned to cut in two directions, and from the inside out, and with this he would enlarge the track of the arrow. Now this allowed the arrowhead to be extracted more easily, if you can say that. Um, And experienced surgeons, like say, fashioned various probes and forceps and these snares like this Dr. Bill did to help get the arrowhead out. And some used, like say this wire loop type thing, and they would blindly guide guide it in there, uh, sometimes with their finger they were able to find it, uh, to encircle the arrowhead and and then they would tighten a loop around the arrowhead and if the surgeon was lucky and strong enough, he pulled the arrowhead out. And uh, anyway, this bloody painful procedure was performed in the field hospitals or even on the battlefield. And as I mentioned, when available, chloroform, morphine, or whiskey uh, sometimes kind of dulled some of the pain, but most of the time there was nothing. They just, the soldier just gritted his teeth or screamed or yelled or bit on a uh, leather glove. But uh, there was a Dr. Elliot Coos, who was a famous military doctor, and he became an expert on arrow wounds while stationed at Fort Whipple, Arizona Territory. And he wrote, a regular part of my business for two years was the extraction of Apache arrowheads. And then he says, Dr. Coos once removed an arrow from a young man's chest while the patient sat on a barrel and he sat, sat on a stump. That the arrowhead was lying near the large subclavian artery, but the artery was luckily quite uninjured, and the procedure was successful.
0: Oh, my.
2: So, you want to talk about some tough guys, you know, you're sitting on a barrel, and a doctor's pulling an arrow out of your chest. So, now, as a rule, military doctors, with their rigorous training and their metal tested on the battlefield, were, they were competent, they were conscientious physicians, and many became leaders in their profession. Now, one outstanding example was a guy by the name of Sternberg. Now, he was a veteran of the Civil War and had a long career with the Army. Well, he was stationed at Fort Walla Walla, Washington, territory in 1877, and Sternberg had just arrived for duty when the Nez Perce began to attack. Now, he was sent to render assistance at the Battle of White Bird Canyon, and then soon after, he attended the troops and at the Battle of uh, the Clearwater. Now, Dr. Sternberg uh, walked out of the battlefield in the dark, only a few yards from the Indian lines to reach some of the wounded and bring them in. Uh, you know, when you think of the military in general, surgeons and medics and these guys had to be some of the bravest uh, from the old Indian wars up through today's wars.
1: Absolutely.
2: But, you know, one man in serious condition, uh, this Dr. Sternberg, uh, he, was, uh, got to, he was losing a great deal of blood, uh, required immediate surgery in the field, so what he did, he had his assistants hold a blanket up to hide the light of a candle from the enemy while he operated out on the field. And in spite of the precaution, some of the NES first sharpshooters fired at the light. So Dr. Sternberg had to finish in the dark and miraculously none of the medics were hit. The surgery was completed successful and the patient survived. Mm. Um, but after several more confrontations between General Howard's command and Chief Joseph's warriors, uh, Dr. Sternberg was ordered to make take 27 wounded soldiers back to safety. Now, this was no small order, because uh, he didn't have enough wagons to carry them, so he kind of copied what the Cheyennes had done. Um, um, he ordered several travois built to transport the wounded. And during the trip to Fort Laplais, which took almost a week on the trail, uh, young Major Sternberg cared for the injured, and he ate and amputated one soldier's leg Uh, because it was bleeding so bad. Now, another remarkable doctor, and I know you've heard of this guy, Dr. Walter Reed. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Reed was part of the the team that discovered the the transmission of yellow fever. And so, that's why this famous hospital back east is named after him. Mm -hmm. But in December 1880, uh, after the massacre at Wounded Knee, Reed was sent to Fort Keel near Miles City, Montana. He treated one officer who's, Life was saved when a bullet struck his pocket watch. Now, Dr. Reed uh, meticulously removed the mainspring, the ratchet, the wheels, the glass, and the watch case from the guy's uh, abdominal wall. Oh, my. Uh, I don't think there's no record of whether they fixed the watch or not, but the watch saved the guy's life.
1: No, it was a but, Timex. It kept on ticking.
2: It kept, it kept on ticking, maybe. But uh, Now, we're going to get the, our good friend, uh, General George Custer. Just eight days before Custer's appointment with Destiny at the Little Bighorn, General George Crook's forces camped near the Rosebud River. And they were attacked by an estimated 1,500 Lakota and northern Cheyenne warriors under the command of Crazy Horse.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the fight raged for hours and frequently in hand-to-hand combat. Well, the battle cost the army at least nine soldiers killed and 19 wounded. But there were no arrow wounds because by then the Indians had guns.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Now. I found this interesting and I know you know about this but they used cylindrical bullets that produced greater tissue damage than the old standard ball yeah and I had never realized that before but now there was one of the officers a Colonel Henry uh, he was shot in the head uh oh yeah now uh, this guy kind of had an interesting uh, uh, history here the bullet smashed both of uh, Colonel Henry's cheekbones his nose and one eye now, he nevertheless attempted to lead another charge, but overcome with shock, he finally fell to the ground. Now, his wounds were dressed at a small aid station in the nearby woods. Uh, after the battle, the army began to retreat south. And Now, to make the trip, this Colonel Henry was placed on a litter suspended between two mules, one in the front and one in the back. So, try to picture this. This guy is on a litter between two mules. Now, the army surgeons supposedly preferred mules to horses because they took smaller steps, giving the wounded uh, soldier a smoother ride.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, on several occasions, doctors had requested that badly injured patients be transported on an Indian-style triboid, uh which we know are parallel poles rigged as a litter and pulled behind a horse. I mean, the Indians were pretty smart about that, but the army, the brass, the upper guys, they kind of refused this because they... They didn't want to copy anything that the Indians were doing, even though it was really the smartest and the best way to move an injured person. Now, let's get back to this uh, this Colonel Henry. Now, in their hurry to leave the battlefield, the troops uh, forced the mules to trot much of the time. So, again, picture him between these two mules trotting on this litter. And Henry admitted later that this was the worst part. And he was positioned feet first between the mules. So the rear animal's thick head and skull kept bumping the guy's already injured head until someone saw this and turned his body around. Now, unfortunately, this position put him in danger of the lead mules kicking, and which, in fact, did kick
1: him several times. Oh, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's another worry I have. If they turned him around... I
2: know what it could be.
1: If they turned him around on the trevois and they, uh, they put his head basically under the tail of the mule, there is more to worry about than just kicking. Yeah, well, that
2: might have been the least of his worries. I I see. I don't know. I see. But I I did kind of think of that. But, uh... Uh, Then, uh, not only that, but uh, he suffered further when the litter actually struck a boulder. He was thrown to the ground, rolled down an incline. Now, after surviving this, he was nearly washed away in the current while the mules were fording the Tongue River. Now, by the time he reached Fort Fetterman, having traveled 300 miles on a litter, Colonel Henry was totally blind, severely anemic, anemic, but he was alive. And amazingly, he eventually returned to full duty. And when asked later about the experience, Henry replied that, he said, oh, it was nothing, nothing remarkable. Well, wait so a minute, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did he get... talked about, uh, you know, helicopters taking people to Salt Lake or Boise, and this guy went 300 miles between two mules.
1: Yeah, but uh, wait a minute. Did he regain his sight? Did, did he have so sight?
2: He he recovered and returned, uh, returned to full duty. So, evidently, they operated and... Uh, Again, these, some of these army surgeons had to be amazing guys.
1: Oh, my goodness.
2: So, now, there's another army surgeon. His name was James DeWolf. Uh, he did not survive the famous attack at the Little Bighorn, nor did his associate, a Dr. George uh, Lord. Now, there was another guy, a Dr. Porter, however, did live to tell about the bloody battle. In fact, he said, we made this retreat on a dead run. He said, the Sioux running right along side of us, shooting, and in some cases is pulling our men off their horses and then killing them. Uh, he said several were killed by my side and the Indians were within 10 yards on either side, firing all the time. Oh, my. But he said as soon as he could, Dr. Porter improvised a hospital, if you want to call it that, on the top of what we now know as Reno Hill. And it was no more than a, really a shallow depression in the earth with sagebrush on both sides an operating table, basically, dirt and sand. And into this barely protected space, the Sioux chiefs uh, and warriors, they would keep lobbing arrows uh, up into the air where they'd come down with a high trajectory, and they'd strike the warriors. So a lot of the guys died that way, and, you know, on their back or their stomach with an arrow in their back. But Dr. Porter worked throughout the first night under attack with over 50 wounded in his care. and with only a flickering candlelight and, with again, without anesthesia. But this physician cleaned and dressed wounds. He removed arrows. He probed for bullets, amputated limbs, and, though fully occupied at intervals, this frustrated Dr. Porter occasionally would grab a rifle and fire a few shots at the Indians. So, uh, per, again, a pretty brave, amazing man.
1: Absolutely.
2: Now, about this time, Colonel Gibbons' 7th Infantry... Uh, with assistant surgeon, uh, a guy by the name of Paulding, they were among the first to discover the the scene at the Little Bighorn, and uh, this young physician was ordered to assist, and at first they used hand litters to remove the wounded and and the dead, but this didn't work out, so again they turned to the mule litters and uh, uh, the traveling, and eventually they moved these guys uh, out to the mouth of the Little Bighorn, Mm. where uh, the steamer the far west waited to take the wounded and I guess uh, whatever they could back uh, back to civilization
1: oh my goodness
2: so, that's kind of the story of some of the some of our army doctors and how brave they were and the amazing things they did under fire did they you know, it's not unlike what happens World War One, World War Two, Vietnam all of these
1: places yeah now listen uh, did they believe at that juncture in history about disinfectants did they believe in disinfecting the wound after they had probed did they use uh, certain items whether it was whiskey or whatever did they disinfect the wound you know uh, it doesn't
2: say anything about that but at this point I don't think they knew much about uh, about that um you know, during the Civil War, they, they didn't uh, really use anything as far as uh, disinfectants. They would uh, cut the leg off one guy, and they'd throw a bucket of water across the uh, uh, operating table, throw another guy on there. Um, but this was in 1880s, uh, you know, in the later 1800s. And I, I'm thinking by then they probably knew about it, but I'm guessing they probably didn't have access to what they really needed.
1: I see. I see.
2: I mean, they didn't have anesthesia, so I'm guessing they, you know, unless they had some whiskey or something, maybe just water. Uh, So I'm guessing they probably tried to do some disinfecting uh, as best they could under those circumstances.
0: Wow. I'll
1: tell you what, we don't realize and appreciate how nice and how comfortable we have it today, do we?
2: Oh, you know, you you think of uh, the uh, emergency room doctors, the uh, things that they've come up with over the years. It's, it's pretty amazing the lives that are saved nowadays.
1: Doctor, real fast before I run out of time, tell everybody about Dr. Dash History.com and how they can go to the website and listen to previous shows. Tell them about that.
2: There's about, We have about 20, between 25 and 30 previously recorded shows on there now at Dr. and then put the little Dash History.com. And you can just go through and pick out the stories that you want to listen to. Uh, we've got everything from Wyatt Earp to Jesse James to uh, Indian athletes. Uh, all kinds of different different subjects and stories of the Old West. And if you like them, tell your friends and family.
1: Absolutely. And by the way, we're now being heard in what, 35 different countries?
2: 25 different countries. We've had over 8,000 hits. Uh, so it's kind of exciting that we're actually getting out there
1: the a little bit. All right. Well, listen, I've got to run, but Dr. History.com. Dr. History, Dr. Ken Turner, thank you so much, and we'll look forward to next Tuesday.
0: All right. We'll talk to you later. Dad, you God bless, care. man.
1: Thank you so much. Appreciate it. I love that segment with Dr. History right here on Zeb at the
2: Ranch.